Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Today, I won't be joining you as it's school holidays here in the ACT, and I've taken the family to visit relatives in Deerham Bandy in southwest Queensland, where we'll be helping out shearing thousands of sheep. Wish me luck. In my place is the ever-reliable national president of IPA, Gordon DeBrower. And his guest is Jane Holton, the esteemed former senior Australian public servant who is playing such a key role in not only the national fight against COVID-19, but the global fight against COVID-19. Jade Holton is the chair of the Global Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and in March 2020, she was appointed to the Executive Board of the Australian National COVID-19 Coordination Commission. This conversation focuses on the big issue of the day, the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on people, the public service and where to from here. It also focuses on Jane's time as a distinguished career public servant in the APS and how it has prepared her to make a contribution at the highest level of public service. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. I'm Gordon DeBrower, the uh, IPA National President. I begin today by uh, acknowledging the uh, traditional custodians of the land on which we're meeting, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my deep respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge their ongoing contribution that they make to the life of our city and our region. I'm delighted today to be talking with Jane Holton, uh, who's got lots of acronyms after her name, uh, <laughs> AOPSM, uh, FAICD and FIPA. Uh, FIPA is the most important there, of Jane, uh, who's on the, the the National COVID Coordination Commission as a commissioner, as well as chair of the Coalition for Ep- Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. That's hard. CEPI. Call it CEPI. It's yeah. easier. Uh, Jane should be known to all of you, frankly, as a long-standing secretary, former secretary of finance and health, mm. a lot of experience. And uh, when she left a couple of years ago, uh, is now on the board of ANZ Clayton Utes uh, Crown Resorts, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and the US Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation and is doing a lot of work on health. So uh, welcome, Jane. Lovely to see you. We might start off with uh, with the pandemic and, mm. and your own experiences that, that evolved and how you saw that. Uh, um, well, I, I, I have uh, said this publicly several times before and because it's been one of my, call it enduring paranoias or interests, depending on the day, I've been working on this for such a long time that I... I unfortunately get lots of phone calls from people when odd things are happening around the world. And I actually got my first phone call about this particular set of what looked like unusual pneumonia deaths in China, actually in late December. And so you have this horrible sense in the pit of the stomach where you think, this could be it. And then you think, no, 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 we've seen this before, don't panic. Um, And I was doing that with a bunch of other, a small number of other people around the world. Well, sadly, of course, it turned out it was something we all have to panic about. So I've been deeply engaged in what's been going on with this, um, with my CEPI hat on, and of course now more broadly, since really January, uh, when we really did get a sense this was something that we should all be deeply concerned about. So it's been 
and of course I can't say that I'm at the front line and I have to pay my respects to, to the people who are on the front line in healthcare in this context, but um, certainly I have been very busy on this particular issue. Can you talk a bit about the the variety of roles that you're doing, what CEPI yeah, is? Yeah, so, then... so basically, for those who haven't heard of it, so, and actually there was a lovely thing in a US publication recently that described it as us as the hitherto little-known CEPI, which I think is fantastic. Um, so we, we were set up two and a half years ago to actually work on... Uh, what are called priority pathogens, things that actually make people who know about these things nervous. And we raised 800 million US dollars. We had an objective of a, a billion in the first five years, so that was pretty good. And we've been investing in research, vaccine development around some of these pathogens. And actually coronavirus was one of the first pathogens we put money into. And we also put money into research and development of technology into what we call disease X, which is, as it sounds, the unknown disease. And for those who are students of these things, and it's been hard to miss, the University of Queensland technology, um, called the molecular clamp technology, mm -hmm. we actually financed that 18 months ago uh, with a variety of potential viruses in mind, but not with one specific virus. And of course, now we've funded them to take that particular technology, uh, this rapid development platform, to uh, produce now, we hope, a successful vaccine. We'll see whether, of course, it does work. Mm -hmm. So that, that we gave them more money to do that in January. So that, that's uh, active not just in Australia but internationally? Uh, or is it... Yeah, well, so so the work that we do is right around the world and we have uh, people that we're financing in research institutions, vaccine manufacturers, etc. literally all around the world. Um, we have partners, collaborators. I have a scientific advisory committee. So the board um, comprises, and I'm literally talking, except for Antarctica, every just about every continent we have someone on our board from. So it's genuinely a global collaboration. Of course, at the moment, we, along with everyone else, are doing everything on Zoom or such similar. You know, we've all turned into what are we called Zoombies. Mm. Um, but, and it's difficult, of course, to run board meetings uh, with that variety of, of input in this way, but uh, we're hardly on our own. So we've, we've been continuing our work in other pathogens, but obviously the key focus for us at the moment is on uh, SARS-CoV-2, otherwise known as COVID-19. And we have been um, the driving force behind the creation of something called COVAX, and COVAX is, uh, we call it the COVAX facility. There's a great international collaboration, which we were very instrumental in getting set up, which is working on vaccines, diagnostics and um, uh, therapies. And so the vaccine pillar is being jointly managed by, jointly chaired by myself and Dr Ngozi, who for anyone's been out and bought a certain book recently will recognise as the other author yeah. on that book, the With front Julia cover. Gillard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. So Dr Ngozi and I are chairing um, the COVAX pillar and she chairs the Gavi board, so it's a combination of the science together with how to deliver vaccines to particularly low- to middle-income countries. But in this case, obviously, it's also about delivering vaccine, we hope, to a bunch of high-income countries as well. So, so in addition to the CEPI work, um, we've got this COVAX mechanism that we're driving, and certainly my CEO in London, together with uh, um, Seth Berkeley, who's the CEO of Gavi, we're working very, very closely, including with the WHO, 
obviously, but we're driving uh, this whole mechanism going forward and we just hope we get a vaccine that works. How do you, if you, if you get a vaccine that works, how do you prioritise who gets it? So I've been out talking a lot publicly about vaccine nationalism, which I'm very, very worried about, and there's a whole backstory and history to that. And essentially what we're trying to do is arrange for any successful vaccine to be available to the world and then to be distributed on the basis of priorities. Working with the WHO, we believe that just about every country needs about 20% of its population uh, immunised first. That's vulnerable people, basically. Older people, um, we're already seeing deaths you know, terribly in Victoria on a day-by-day basis at the moment. Um, so older people, people who are immune compromised, uh, people who have comorbidities, and of course, our first-line responders. So people who work in healthcare, um, who work in these environments, they are at greater risk. Our first responders in terms of police forces, etc. So if we could get... Um, 20% of the world vaccinated to reduce that total risk. Now, it doesn't mean everyone else isn't at any risk, but it will bring down mortality very significantly. But we have to get a vaccine, then we have to get it into the facility to make sure it's distributed. So it's a long way to go. How do you deal with in a world, it's a very different world from 10 years ago, mm. where maybe a third of the G20 countries are now run by populist nationalists? Mm who are going to look after their people first. Yep. How do you deal with that? So that essentially, and, and this will sound um, <laughs> a little curious to those of us who've always worked on the basis of um, stronger together, mm. uh, we have to actually understand that there are going to be commercial forces operating here. And some countries, and we've seen this on PPE, personal protective equipment already, some countries have slapped export bans on. And so one of the reasons we have been working so hardly across a number of countries is to try and have enough muscle in the market to be able, if, particularly if it's not a vaccine that we have been part of developing, that we can actually uh, get access to a vaccine and partly that will be because we can pay for it and we have enough mm -hmm. countries lined up together to get into that supply chain now, if it's a vaccine that we've been party to funding, well, we do have uh, a, some rights because we have an equitable access policy and the people we work with sign on to that. So, for example, the University of Queensland work, which I talked about earlier, we have done a deal between them, CEPI, as in us, and CSL, in relation to how CEPI will get a share for a global mechanism for global distribution for the public good. And CSL, of course, has a long-standing relationship with the Australian government on biosecurity, which at one point I was on the other side of. Mm. Uh, so that would be how that would work. But, again, it's a long way to go yet. Mm. Can I take you back? Um, the, the Prime Minister appointed you some others to the COVID-19 mm. Commission. Mm. Can you talk a bit about how, what, what, how that worked and then... What your, what your insights or your responsibilities are uh, yeah. on that? So, so the um, National COVID Coordination Commission, which I think um, we, is an unusual um, kind of structure at one level because what it's done is it's brought in um, to a group a group of people who mostly have basically a private sector experience. They are um, people who are very well respected, very experienced in business. And I'm slightly odd one out in that group, but I do now work in the commercial world. Mm -hmm. um, but I know an awful lot about health. 
obviously, and a lot about government. So um, what the Prime Minister announced is he, he wanted us to have the, fa the fastest kind of recovery and the, and the best input to policy and all the rest of it that you can think of. And I'm sure everyone who's listening to this... Uh, who does policy work all the time understands that you need the best input. So the Prime Minister decided that he would like a group who could not only kind of input to policy but also could actually help fix some problems, particularly at that very early stage when I think we were all collectively struggling to find a way through. And so what the Commission has done, and it's I mean, a great group of people all have basically put their shoulder to the wheel, um, it's involved all sorts of things. Uh, helping remove roadblocks on access to PPE. Mm. So uh, looking to see whether we can repurpose manufacturing in some places so we can make things for ourselves, um, helping with all that sort of work, talking to businesses, working on the wor on the COVID-safe workplace material, so um, actually advising business on how they basically could put themselves in a position where they probably were able to operate more than they were able to previously. How did they actually adjust to these new circumstances? And Nev Power, uh, the former CEO of Fortescue, who is the chair, um, uh, he and I had a funny conversation the other day where we said we, we think what we've spent 90% of our time doing is talking to people. Um, how might you go about this? Mm. Who can you get advice from? Where do you go? How do you think about it? Etc. And, of course, um, we're all very conscious of everything from the financing issues and, of course, I'm, because I'm a director of the ANZ, you know, I've got an insight into what's going on in that world. So it's been a, um, it's been a really, uh, um, I mean, unusual, I absolutely accept, but I think a very worthwhile um, enterprise. And so and we've gone from very early just straight out get in and help where people needed it, um, crisis sort of response... And that's just covered a huge waterfront, including, for example, somebody who is losing or going to have to stand down employees with customer service skills, knowing that there was another employer who needed people with customer service skills and literally just putting those parties together. So I've mm. done that myself. Yeah, you know, right. Just introduce one group of people to another group of people and off they go. And that's helped keep people in work, mm. which has been fantastic. So that kind of really practical... Um, just, you know, mucking in uh, through to thinking about policy issues and particularly things the Prime Minister's got an interest in um, and that it's been a privilege to be part of. Yeah. What, what sort of things have, have surprised you from it? Uh, from the NCCC particularly? Yeah. 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 I, I think it's a combination, actually, and, and why should I be surprised? But, you know, every day you see something you think, oh, that's interesting... I, I've been a bit surprised in some cases at the difference in the amount of time it's taken people to think their way through this and adjust. Mm. Some people, um, some businesses, some sectors have been, right, here we are, okay, off we go, what do we need to do, and really, really, really focused. Um, I mean, they've had in some cases to deal with very... Um, unexpected circumstances and the way people have kind of shifted and I know this this is complex because for example toilet paper 
we all know about toilet paper, as in the absence of it. Um, so working with through the supermarket task force, people that the commission has been working with those sorts of industries. So one to scale up manufacturing, secondly to look at supply chains, all of the kind of things that will actually help facilitate things being produced and delivered. And some in some areas, people have been very very fast and agile. In others. And it's probably the shock of the situation, actually. No one's been through this for 100 years. Mm. And some people, it's taken them a while to get their head around it. And I would argue that the community still hasn't got their head around this. Not yet properly. You know, it's a passing thing. It's about to be fixed. It's all good now. Um, and that's not where we're at. So what would be the, the immediate priorities you see uh, on, on that work, but more generally around the pandemic? Well, I mean, I think in terms of that work, I think I think there's a real opportunity, actually, for all of us. Um, people have innovated, they've changed how they do things, they've um, literally found ways to solve problems that have frustrated people for years. And I think one of the really big opportunities, and it's not just for government, for government policy, I think it's for industry, I think it's actually for all of us as people, um, what's worked really well? Let's not lose it. Mm. Um, I mean, I think it's arguable that we've had more uptake of um, ICT than we've probably just about ever seen, including, and one of my hats is as the chair of the Council on the Ageing, including amongst older people. I mean, people who, and I know this from the banking world, um, older people who basically just couldn't get their hands around, um, you know, online banking, they're now doing it, thanks. Um, you know, the passbook is definitely dead and buried whereas it wasn't before this. So I think, I think one of the things we're seeing and we've been talking with government about is how we, how we keep the good things and see where the policy opportunities and the regulatory opportunities um, in terms of red tape might be in that sense. Uh, now, not everything that we've had to do is good and so we need not to keep the, the things that are less good, I think. But I think that's a real, that's, that's a real opportunity that we've seen. Yeah. So, what's your sense with uh, when you talk to business around that of of how they they're positioning explicitly to, to lock in the good things, including from digitisation, the flexibility and work, that that opportunity to really engage mm. and know your customer. Yeah. So, so I mean, what I what I'm actually seeing out there is, firstly, people acknowledging that we don't know where that finishes yet. And the beginnings of what it looks like in terms of a BAU, business as usual kind of approach. Um, so there's a level of um, interest and enthusiasm is one of the things I'm seeing. Uh, whilst obviously some people are doing it very, very tough, but the question about how how they might translate that into a new approach to the way they run their business and probably a business that's going to be leaner um, much more efficient than it was because everyone's now very minded of, you know, where the revenue is going to come from, etc. So, so that's certainly one of the things that, um, you know, we've been seeing quite a lot of. And certainly, I mean, if I think about the banking world, um, how we accelerate what is um, this change to a whole new digital world in banking. Now, that's challenging because there's a whole investment you've got to make to do that and that doesn't come in the next five minutes it takes a while but at the same time um, you know maintain customer service and, and all those sorts of issues I think every business has got a different challenge um, and I think we can see in our economy some businesses 
um, have been really flexible and creative. I mean, all those restaurants who turned to takeaway overnight. Yeah, and for those of us in Canberra, we can think of our favourite eatery and we've all gone around and had the takeaway from them recently, which is good. But but I do think there there will be some parts of our economy that we'll have to really think about it. And, for example, tourism. Um, now, we know Australians spend more going away overseas than people who come from overseas spend in Australia. But is the experience in the Australian tourism market going to keep those people who would normally would have gone away overseas, will it keep them interested? So I think thinking about those sorts of things. There's, a, there's going to be a lot of change, I think, Gordon. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, can I ask you then, uh, reflecting on the public service and mm. what you saw, not, not maybe also what you saw from, from uh, the international health work, but really what you saw from the Commission and working with the service... Mm. What what uh, what were your impressions or your your, your judgments around around that? Well, of course, it, it, it it's such a familiar thing because I've been through this not obviously on this scale before, but when I was in the service, but now working with the service, um, and I still have a habit of saying we, yeah, <laughs> not <yeah>. you. <laughs> I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. Um, look, what what does the service do so well in a crisis? It basically stands up. It puts aside its inclination to protect its own patch. It, it finds what... It does exactly the things I just talked about with industry. It innovates. It is creative. It um, puts aside um, the kind of competition or, or whatever it might be that come up sometimes is a friction in a relationship. I have seen fantastic cooperation across agencies. Really, really excellent. Now... The danger, of course, and we've seen this happen so many times, as soon as that crisis side is is passing, people go back to what I describe as boundary writing. You know, well, you can't do that. That's mine. And so I think... And I do think there's a challenge for the service. Um, you know, we've been talking about what reform looks like in the service, um, what, what does the new world look like. Mm. And I think, in a way, if you could take and bottle what's gone really well now and think about how you institutionalise some of that going forward, including the use of technology, more flexible working arrangements, et cetera, I think that would be a really good thing. Um, I, I fear, and I've seen it recently, a bit more of the boundary writings back. Um, so I think the challenge for people is to keep that open mind. How do you, uh, how do you stop the boundary writing? Is it just, it's just innate? Or do you, have you got particular things that you can uh, push back on it? Um, look, I, I do think it's a reflex, and I think we all do it. I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone of doing it. But I do think there is an opportunity for people, if they can actually focus more on shared objectives. And I do think the thing that, that if you think about what characterises the recent past, is it's the one enemy, it's the one objective... And if we can be, be, if we were better at expressing those, because you know it's not actually the legislation that stops you. Um, I have made that point time and time. I make this point when I was in a secretary of finance. But to be fair, when I was a secretary of health, um, there are ways under the legislation, including under the Appropriations Act, to actually uh, make those things happen. But you have to want to. Yeah. Do you reflect on the? Um whether it's the nature of the people, the, the extent of the hierarchy, that those things are leaning in on some of those things, is that a way to change as well? Um, I, think, I think the ability to actually deploy, um, and I'm going to use this word with the proprietary label on it, 
the agile approach to mm. life. Um, so there's a little R with a circle around it yeah. when I say agile in this context. I mean, I've seen that work outside um, in the private sector really, really well. And it does require you to bring together multidisciplinary teams. And I think the service has done that in particular cases, but I, I don't think it's been institutionalised enough. And I think, in fact, if you ran that kind of approach much more regularly across departments, here's a problem to be solved. We're all sharing in the solving of this problem. I'll provide the regulatory expert. You provide the person who's actually going to write the cabinet submission. You, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I do think there are techniques um, that actually, if you've got a shared objective, if you have shared resourcing to deliver it, you probably could get a lot further. There were some, uh, I think, really powerful and great examples, like you talked about with business, of mm -hmm. learning how to work with your customer or, or yeah. delivery some phenomenal changes across service delivery, yeah, both absolutely. the Commonwealth and states. The thing is, how do you how do you lock it in? Yeah, uh, and pushing on those conversations is is uh, is really important and valuable. Um, is is there anything else around that that uh, you'd reflect on? Um, well. On some of this working together, uh, do you got any observations around, say, the, the rise of populist nationalism and sometimes the the, the increased problems around security yes. uh, and their interface with economics? Yes. You, you see those things playing out in, in the health domain? Um, of course. Um, Absolutely. I mean, what, what we're seeing in a number of countries very much is playing out in that way. I mean, I don't think... It's helpful to be a kind of commentator on politics, particularly in other countries. I mean, I think the fantastic thing about what we've seen here is notwithstanding political difficulty, when we're in real trouble, people basically are working together, and that includes politically, which I think is fantastic. Uh, other countries, not so. And, and I do think the risk of um, using health resources and health approaches in a way which... Um, actually creates envy and division, which is what you're seeing in some places, and indeed often outright contradicting of um, the facts and the truth and the science, which I, I really have to say as a person I struggle with because my approach has always been about evidence-based policy, evidence-based approach mm. to everything, sometimes mediated by the, what you can actually get people to agree. Um, and so I think, I think the risk we've got at the moment is from a kind of global security perspective um, that some of those uh, domestic uh, arguments and approaches, they flow into the international context. And, I mean, I think for a small country like Australia, we have to hold our course, but I don't think we can be blind to, to, to those risks and, you know, some of the things that may therefore um, impact us as a consequence. As a health, uh, as a leader in, in health administration and, and in finance, you would have done a lot of work with the states. Mm. And, and national cabinet has really reset the nature of that 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 flavour and mm. cooperation within the federation. Do you see that reflected as well then in the work that you do on, on the COVID commission or yes. on, on on health? Yeah, and I, how that's how, I, how do you lock in that? Well, again, I think it's exactly the same as the issue you see um, that I talked about with the service itself. I mean, I think there's very much a shared objective at the moment. I mean, I've just recently finished sitting on the Federal Financial Relations Review done by uh, the New South Wales Government for the New South Wales Treasurer, Dominic Perrottet, with David Thody. 
And uh, and I think one of the things we were reflecting on is that in the National Cabinet, there genuinely has been partnership. Um, and there's some things where, you know, the, the traditional imbalance in those relationships often to do with Commonwealth revenue raising capacity um, wasn't always a feature of those discussions because, you know, states have powers um, to open and close schools and manage hospitals and all those other things, which actually kind of brought a balance to that discussion, which I think has been pretty healthy. And they haven't always agreed and they seem to have managed to work their way through it. But, you know, as with everything, um, it, it takes it takes more than one crisis to remake the relations of that have taken 100 years to create, over 100 years. So what I would hope is that that spirit of just getting on with it um, can pervade Commonwealth state negotiations at that level going forward, because I think we've all seen and appreciated the goodwill and the output as a consequence. Yeah. Um, like you talked about with uh, with business, uh, the digital the digital transformation that COVID has really mm. accelerated requires investment. Yes. And for public sector, yep. that also is, you know, uh, unless you invest in the digital technology and the capability, you're not going to be able to do those things or sustain those That's things. That's right. Uh, you got any reflections on that, particularly as a former Secretary of Finance, Jim? <laughs> uh. Look, I'm, I've always been um, a fan of investment in technology, providing it's well-managed and it's focused on a particular purpose. Um, I'm conscious that our colleagues in and friends in Services Australia basically processed, I think it was about a year's worth of applications for assistance in about a month flat. Mm. Now, that is a Herculean task for which they... I mean, they won't probably get very many thanks, but all I can say is be assured some of us saw it and really appreciated the effort. Um, but, of course, the more we can digitise those kind of functions, not only is it... Does it mean you don't have to just throw people at it? it? It means, one, it's easier for the citizen, but also the people we have who work on the service can can actually deal with the really human issues, you know, the people who are at great stress, um, the people who actually really do need lots of support. And I think... So you're basically taking the, the valuable resource, the human resource, up the value chain and spending in a way that's really effective. Now, that does require an investment in technology, and I'm really pleased that the government has invested, mm. for example, in Services Australia to, to keep going with that digitisation because I think everyone will benefit from that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, can I ask you so, a final reflection on uh, around yourself and mm. h how you found sort of personal resilience in this? And it may be just the excitement and the importance, but also is there something you learned about yourself as a, as a person in this? Um, <laughs> it's always the question, isn't it? Look, um, people who've worked with me for a long time will tell you that and I think it's a terrible thing to say, but I do get it's like a certain energy from a crisis. Um, and for those, again, who I've worked with and I know so well, I mean, essentially a lot of my career has been around um, health resilience, health security, preparing the nation. And, I mean, not that I ever actually really thought in my life I'd see this kind of crisis, um, but here we are. And in a way, Gordon, I, I feel... this 
will sound a little strange perhaps, I feel quite privileged um, that I have an opportunity with all of the experience I've been privileged to gain working in the service, privileged to do the jobs I've done internationally, that I can now use all of that to help. And I hope, particularly with my international work, but also with my domestic work, I hope that we can make a real difference to bringing it to a conclusion sooner. Yeah, well, thanks. And... Uh Thank you personally too. Oh, thank you very much for doing this podcast. But thank you for your work too, Jane. Oh, it's I think a, it's, it's as great. I said, it, it is actually a privilege and it's my pleasure. Well, there you have it. Gordon De Brower in conversation with, it has to be said, the remarkable Jane Holton. Ladies and gentlemen, Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to listen to GovComs, which I strongly suggest that you do, you will find it by typing the name into any of your podcast applications and it will be found. Thanks also to you, the audience, for giving up some of your valued, valuable time and it will come up. Thanks also to you, the audience, for giving us some of your valuable time and attention once again. And please share, rate and review our program so it can be found. The audience is continuing to grow and we are so grateful for your support. So please keep at it, keep passing it along. Your efforts are working. Thanks also once again to our great partners here at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission who have been so generous and supportive in making these conversations happen. I'm David Pembroke and you have been listening to a special edition of Work With Purpose. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.